Good morning. Welcome, everyone. So, I was picking my kids up from school the other day, and uh, I don't always listen to Christian radio. I, uh, I actually, I'm a big fan of country music as well. Um, but on this, this occasion, I was listening to WBCL, and uh, they were, they're doing that thing where you phone in with, it was like some contest of, tell me, uh, tell me a, a Christian cliche or like a phrase or saying that's been super helpful for you over the years. And I'll be honest, most of them kind of made me want to throw up in my mouth a little bit, right? Like the progressive uh, commercial becoming like your parents, right? No cussing, no fussing, like that kind of stuff. You know, you know what I'm talking about? You see that commercial? Yeah, yeah, that one. Okay. A lot of them were like that. But there was one, this gal called in and she said, so my dad, almost every day, he was a principal. And I guess he ended the announcements with this as well. We know like the principals do or whatever at schools. But he said, she said, before we left the house, he would say, have a great day or don't. The choice is yours. I thought, man, that's a wise dad. I, I wish he would have been my principal, right? It's super good. And the more I thought about it, it's like, I agree with that. And yet I also recognize how difficult that decision is to make a lot of days. Because life is hard. And it's really difficult to choose to live with the joy of Jesus in the midst of suffering. And so that is what I want to talk with you today about. I've entitled the message, How to Live with More Joy in Your Life. Joy is, is something that... I think it's hard to define. It gets called happiness, which is kind of that. It gets called peace, which I think it's, it's a little different than peace, but it's hard to define, but we all know what it is when we experience it, don't we? We know what it is. At its simplest, I think joy is the relational exchange. So it has to do with connections and relationships. Foundationally, it's about shared relational experiences. Joy is the, the relational exchange of everything that is good for life. I love that. If you've not seen that Pixar movie about the emotions or whatever, she represents joy in the, it's a phenomenal movie. You should check it out. But she's given something to that little boy, and right? They're, they're, sharing, they're sharing joy together. At its simplest, joy is the relational exchange of everything that is good for life. It's the experience of God's goodness that is shared with him and also with one another. It's, it's the feeling that someone is glad to be with us. And if you made me give a definition of what joy is, I think I, that's what I would call it. It's the feeling we get knowing that someone is glad to be with us. Joy is the sparkle in someone's eye when you walk in the room and their face lights up. Or like when your, child, when your children, when you get home from work and your children light up. Or when the grandparents come over and your children light up. That's joy. Joy is the, the picture of the woman embracing her husband who just got off the plane from Afghanistan, right? That's joy. Joy is children playing and tumbling and giggling together. Joy is a smile that we just can't help but share with others. That's what joy is. Again, it's hard to define, but we all know it when we experience it. I've been reading a book about joy by a guy named Dr. James Wilder. His, his title is a neurotheologian. It means he's a brain scientist and he also studies scripture. So kind of a fancy title. I'm thinking about adding it to my resume maybe. Probably not. I don't know anything about brain science. I'm just going to tell you what he told me, right? But I've been reading this, this book called Joy Starts Here. And Dr. Jim Wilder explains in that book, he says, Joy is so special that God offers joy as his reward to us rather than candy, rather than jewelry, rather than uh, popularity, wider smiles, or a faster internet connection. Joy is so pivotal to God. Get this. This blew my mind when I read it. I can't believe I hadn't seen it. 
after studying scripture all these years, I hadn't. Joy is so pivotal to God that he promises joy to us more than he promises eternal life or heaven. That's crazy. That's how important it is for God. He wants us to experience joy. In fact, Jesus lists the reason for his teachings as being so that you and I can have the fullness of joy. In John 17, 13, right, there's this thing we preachers like to call the Last Supper discourse. Essentially, what it is is Jesus is on his deathbed, metaphorically speaking. He knows he's about to die. No one else does. He's headed towards the crucifixion. It's his, it's his deathbed. These are his last words, John 13 through John 17. So he teaches all of this stuff. He packages it. He says, listen, I'm not going to be here very much longer. Here's what you need to know. And at the end of all of that, he says, I'm coming to you now, John 17, 13, but I say these things while I'm still in this world. I'm telling you this stuff. Why? So that you may have the full measure of my joy within you. Now, show of hands here, who would like the full measure of God's joy within them? Yeah? Right? Obviously, we all want that. We all want that. I was thinking about this reality and how joy is such a driving factor in our life. I realized that joy is the reason behind why we do most of the things that we do in our life. It's why we go on vacation. So we can experience rest and joy. Oftentimes it's why we buy things, right? Feeling a little down. It's like swipe on the old Amazon account. Ooh, that that made me feel good. It's why we make the stop by that pantry at 9.30 p.m. This is totally hypothetical. I never do this, right? (laughs) To get more more candy or as the English call it, some more sweeties. I got a sweet tooth. I love my sweeties. They just make me feel good. It's why we stop by the freezer, when we get another pie to ice cream, when we're feeling sad, joy is the reason why we turn to substances, why we turn to pornography, why we binge watch hours of television, sweets, TV, sex, alcohol, drugs, experiences, adventure. All of these things offer to us a quick hit of a kind of pseudo joy to our brains. These things offer to us a quick release of dopamine, and dopamine is the drug that stimulates our pleasure centers of our brain. It makes us feel the things that we would feel through a joyful interaction with one another or with God. But this fake joy, this pseudo-joy that that we get by chasing after these things, it does not last. It doesn't last, does it, right? The sweets, they're, they're good for a minute, and then you feel pretty guilty about it especially as you start to pack on the old dad bod. (laughs) Again, completely hypothetical. In our search for more joy, we get trapped in the law of diminishing returns. We find ourselves having to buy more of those things, whatever they might be, eat more of that stuff, whatever it might be, to make us feel more joy, even if it only lasts for an hour or a few minutes. But the fake joy we experience from these things does not have staying power in our lives. It's a quick hit that quickly fades. And eventually, if you're not careful, you can get trapped in addiction. Addiction takes over and eventually we're living with less and less joy 
And the thing that gives us joy, people being glad to be with us as we, as we get addicted, we become a slave to the created things rather than the creator, we find ourselves not wanting to connect with people, the source of our joy, to connect with God, the source of our joy. We'd rather just have the sweets. We'd rather just have the, the ice cream or, or the porn or, or whatever, fill in the blank because it's easy to control or manipulate. And then we get to be grumpy and miserable and nobody wants to be around us and we don't want to be around them. Our relational circuits, our capacity for joy gets shut off and shut down. You see, in a very real way, our search for joy apart from God and his people leads us into slavery and it leads us into idolatry where we are being controlled by the good gifts that the Lord meant to bless us with rather than being controlled by our Father, the good giver behind those gifts. And I'm here to tell you today that as sobering as it is to learn about what joy has the capacity to do in our hearts and in our lives, I'm here to tell you today that it's actually, it's actually how you were created. You and I were created for joy. That desire, that craving for joy is not a bad thing. The trick is discovering where we go to find it. And it's not going to come from sex or substances or sweets. It can only come from Jesus. And so what I want to do with you this morning is walk through Romans 5, 1 through 11, and I simply want to show you how to live with more joy in your life. Simply put, it comes by remembering what Jesus purchased for you in your justification. Justification is a really big churchy word, but it's important. I want you to know it. If you're justified before the Father, he says it's just as if you never sinned, which means God is always happy to see you. That's what grace is. God is always happy to see you, which brings joy when we learn to live in that reality. So let's read Romans 5, 1 through 11 together. Paul writes this, Therefore, stop. Therefore is a big word in Scripture. Paul is saying, based on Romans 1 through Romans 4 and the following verses, because of all of that, I'm going to say this. So if you don't know what it says, it's a good point to go back and read that. But therefore, because we're saved by grace, through faith, alone, in Christ, as we've been saying. Therefore, because of that, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still rebels. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him, by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. If I were going to summarize what Paul said there, 
And again, he, he is uh, quite wordy. If I were to summarize what Paul says here in a sentence, I would say that Paul is saying the justification of Jesus roots us in an increasing state of joy when we learn to live in the reality that God is glad to be with us. What he's saying is, if you remember what Christ did for you in your justification, that he brought peace and grace, you can rejoice even in your sufferings. Paul says that if Jesus' death was sufficient to deal with God's wrath and bring us to a peaceful state with the Father, then Jesus is able to do anything for us in our life. And in verse 1, we discover that is precisely what Jesus does when we express faith. He gives us peace with God. And this isn't peace. Peace is a word that I'm try, I've been trying to help us understand. It's a word typically that means um, I, I know that everything's going to be okay. Even if everything's not okay, I live with the sense that everything's going to be okay. That's a, that's a certain kind of peace. This is a peace where there's two, two parties at war and there's a peace brought where, where they're reconciled to one another. Here's what I want you to know about, about what, what uh, Paul says in verse 1. He says, through Christ, we've been justified and we have peace with God. If you have faith in Jesus, God has made peace with you. If you do not have faith in Jesus, God is at war with you. You might say, hold up, man, that's, that's, a, little, that's a little harsh. Let me just help you understand what I mean here. It's just a reality of what happens when we rebel in sin. When we rebel in sin, we're basically saying, My, me, myself, I'm in charge. The throne that exists to control and govern my life so I can do what I want, when I want, how I want, whenever I want, yeah, I'm on that. I'm the king here. Do you know what happens when there's two territories and two, when there's one territory and two kings and they both want it? War. War. God wants you. He loves you. He wants you to be his child. He wants you as his territory. He wants the Holy Spirit to come and invade your life and build a home within you so that you can know, as we sang in that song, that God is with me, that God is for me, that he is always glad to be with me. He is the king of the universe, and he wants you. But you're trying to put the crown on your life. There's a territory. It's you, your body, mind, soul, and spirit. And when we rebel and put that crown on ourselves. War happens. God is at war with us. He is not at peace with us if you do not know Jesus. And friends, y'all know how hard it is to live against the world and what the world can throw at us in general. Now imagine how much more difficult it is if the God in heaven is also against you. Now, you would think if God is a king, and most of you, you might be thinking this already, well, that sounds kind of like a jerk of a guy, right? He's going to try and take over my life. And you would think that based on the examples we have from real life. But God is not a king like earthly kings. He does not try and win you and win control over you with threats and violence. God chooses to try and win us to his side with extravagant love and sacrifice. He says, let me tell you the lengths that I'm willing to go to win you to me. His son sacrificed his life to pay for our treason. And when we accept that trade in faith, Paul says we're justified as just as if we've never sinned. And God, Jesus, makes peace with God. He's with you. 
He's for you. He's always happy to see you no matter what. As Paul says in verse 2, he summarizes it. He says, you stand in grace. You stand in grace. We've unpacked over the last two weeks what that means to stand in grace. We looked at the life of David. We've looked at the life of Abraham. What does it mean to stand in grace? It means that no matter what you do, you make a royal mess of your life. You trade your wife in to a king's harem twice, right? You commit adultery. You have a guy murdered. You're faithless to your family. You're faithless to your spouse. You're faithless even to God. You misunderstand. You make mistakes. And even through all of that in the life of David and Abraham, because they stood in grace, God was always happy to see them. He was always for them. He was always with them. He was always with them. Now, that's amazing, and it's true, but please do not misunderstand grace here. God is not always pleased by our failings, nor does his grace always protect us from the consequences that come into our life by those failings or when we screw up. But what it means to stand in grace, it means that God will never abandon you nor forsake you. He will always be with you. He's always happy to be with you. Discipline may come, but it's not going to come from some angry judge in the sky. If discipline comes, it will come from someone who loves you, who has your best interests in mind, and as I've been saying, because I want you to get it, is always happy to be with you. He's always happy to see you. Always. And folks, Paul tells us that if we know what the justification of Christ works out for us, if we understand the peace that it brings and the grace that it brings, then we will be enabled to live with joy no matter what, even in our suffering. Look at Romans 5, verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. It's not an easy thing to do. As I said at the start of this morning, joy as it, at its simplest is, it, is the understanding that, or the experience that someone is happy to see you. With what Christ has done for you, he has enabled us to know that God is always with us and that he's always happy to see us. That's what verse 5 is really all about, I think. And hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us in a very real sense, more real than we can wrap our heads around. The God of heaven has chosen to make his home in the people who put their faith in Jesus. He's always with you. He's always for you. He'll never leave because you stand in grace. And Paul says if we can live in this reality, we can learn to rejoice even when we suffer. Now, I don't know about you. The problem is when we suffer, Pain has an incredible way of hindering our ability to sense God's presence and to feel joyful, doesn't it? When we suffer, one of the first questions that most often comes into our mind is, God, where the heck are you? Where'd you go? How did you let this happen? Where are you? Right? We've all been there. Our feelings are powerful in these moments and they, they cloud our, our ability to perceive reality and truth. It becomes really hard to discern. So how do we receive joy when we suffer in these circumstances? How do we, how do we get our heart to sense God's presence? Simply, and this will sh- sound cliche, so let me unpack it, we strive to remember the truth. 
We strive to remember what the justification of Jesus purchased for us. We will ourselves to remember what Christ has done through his justification, that he, he brought about peace through his death between us and God, that God is for us, that he rooted us in grace, in relational connection, where we can know that we always have access to the Father, and when we access him, he's happy to see us. Tim Keller put it like this. He says, justification is not merely the removal of a negative, of hostility, It's that, but it's more than that. It also has a positive aspect as well. It reconciles us in relationship. It makes peace with God for us and enables us to stand in the throne room of grace knowing that God is always happy to be with us in that relationship. Now, for the most part, we've been talking in theory, right? And I had a sneaking suspicion and I was, as I was writing this that some of y'all were going to glass over and some of you had. So I invite you to come back. And we're going to make this really practical. I said it's going to sound cliche. How do we learn to live with, with more joy? Well, we remember what Christ did for us. Sounds kind of cliche. How do we do that? How do we do that? I want to give you a diagram that I found to be incredibly helpful. It's from Dr. James Wilder, that neurosurgeon. I've got copies uh, neuro, not neurothurgeon, neo-the- neurotheologian. I can't even say it, it's so big. Um, I have copies over here, and you can pick them up later if you want, but I'll explain it, because right now it's a little confusing. Essentially, here's what Jim offers us to imagine. He says, imagine that your life is like a giant mountain. So you've got the mountain there, right? I got the, can we see the laser? Yeah, okay. You've got the mountain there. At the top is what he calls the inner... The interactive seat, looks like the battery's dead on that. Looks like the interactive seat on on there, okay? So here's what this means. In life, we want to live at the mountaintop. We want to live with joy. That's a high energy feeling where we can sense God's presence, where we know he's happy to be with us. We also want to experience peace. That's a low energy sense that I just know everything's going to be okay. We want to experience rest. We want to have an intimate connection with the Father where we don't just go through religious circles and hoops, but we actually know that God loves us and he speaks to us through his word and through others and in dreams and visions and all kinds of different ways. There's a vibrant relationship with the Father. We can sense his presence always. That's the mountaintop the interactive seat. That's where we want to live. The problem is, as Stephanie prayed and we all experienced on Saturday, we live in a life with storms. The wind blows. There are tornadoes and earthquakes and hurricanes. And so as we're trudging up the mountain of life, trying to connect with the Father and experience joy, a slant landslides come our way in life. Boulders hurl down at us. They, they beat us down. We get wounded. And before long, we slip and we fall. And where do we find ourselves? In what Psalm 23 says and calls the valley of the shadow of death. We find ourselves down in this valley with all of these thorns from the wounds that we've experienced and the traumas that we've experienced and the lies that we've been told from the enemy. And we're beaten and we're torn down and we're worn out and we can't sense God's presence and we just want to take a rest. And so we sit in what Jim calls the thorn-filled pain memory seat because we want to rest. And when we sit down, we might find a little bit of rest, but mostly because we're sitting on a seat of thorns, mostly what we feel and sense is pain. It's pain, hardship, struggle. 
Jim tells us that this seat, this seat is the accumulation of life's experiences, traumas, and memories where we are not aware of God's presence. You name it. It's a memory, something horrible that's happened. And you, if I were to ask you, where was God in that? You would say, I have no hairy idea where. Where God was one in this moment. And you can't sense his presence because it's just too painful. It's too hard. The seed is the accumulation of life's experiences, traumas, and memories in which we are not aware of God's presence. It's a place where we struggle to live with the awareness that God is happy to be with us, where we struggle to be, to be aware of God at all. This is a place and a seat I think all of us can identify with. We all have wounds. We all have traumas in our lives where people said and did things, where life threw us a curveball, where we live in a reality where people get cancer and get sick and die or tragedy strikes and we just get beat down by life. We get wounded. We're inflicted with pain and we still carry a lot of that pain with us today. Friends, I understand why we sit in this seat. The pain is real. I get it. I get it. I know why we sit here. But if, if we continue to persist in sitting in our pain, we will never be able to experience the joy that God has to give us. And with that said, I recognize that the pain we feel here is real. You can't just flip a switch, right? And on your own, you just can't will yourself to get up out of it. Now, in Jesus, there's power, but on your own, we're, we're stuck. We're stuck. Not only is the pain too painful, but at times in these moments, because of the pain and traumas that we've experienced, we make agreements with the enemy, with Satan. Sometimes this is conscious, sometimes it's unconscious. So let's imagine a scenario. Boulder gets hurled into your life, something happens, it's incredibly traumatic, and you know what the truth is, but in that moment, the lies of the enemy feels more real and, and you choose to, to agree with, with the lies and the reality put forth by Satan rather than the reality put forth by God. What happens when we make those agreements? What we're saying is, I agree with you, Satan, more than I agree with the king of heaven. And because you make that agreement, you are giving him authority to influence your life in a greater degree than what he should be allowed to as a Christian in Jesus. The Bible calls this a stronghold. A stronghold is a place, a space, or a territory where we've given over authority and influence to the enemy. It happens because we're wounded and traumatized and we can't sense God's presence. So we might know what we should feel, but what we do feel is more in accordance with the lies of the enemy. Because of those strongholds, it's even harder for us to get up out of that thorn-filled seat. So you say, well, what do I do? What if I'm stuck in a habitual sin that I can't get out of? I, I've read my Bible, I pray, I come to church, nothing's working. If that's you, chances are there's a stronghold in your, in your life. Do you know how you tear that down? Confession and prayer. That's what our freedom ministry is all about. We have an intake form where we invite people that say, listen, I'm doing all of the, the bodybuilding in the faith Everything that you're saying that should be helping me experience joy and helping me live with power of Jesus and sense his presence, I'm doing all of that stuff and nothing's working. Then I would say, we've got a spiritual warfare problem and as sheriffs in the kingdom, we would love to help you tear down those strongholds and release greater freedom and joy into your life. We've got an intake form, you can fill it out. We've got a whole process that we can go through to help, help bring some more healing help you get up out of that thorn 
thorn seat so that you can sense and perceive God's presence. You say, well, what can I do? I don't want to fill out an intake form. All right, well, that's fine. I think everybody would benefit by going through our freedom ministry. It's fine if you don't want to. Here's a practical thing that you can do to start to build more joy into your life. Our text give us, gives us the, the antidote, so to speak, in verses 2, 3, and 11. Paul says, rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice in the hope of glory. Rejoice in your sufferings. Rejoice in God through whom Jesus has reconciled us in relationship. If you look up the word in the Greek, the word translated as rejoice means to brag or boast. Brag or boast about God. For some of you, I realize you might be saying, I'm not even sure if God exists, right? I'm I'm in that thorn seat. I can't sense his presence. If he's real, I don't know where he is. I don't got anything to boast about. That's what I want to help you with. How do we get ourselves into a place where we are rejoicing, boasting, bragging about God always, no matter what? That's joy. How do we live from that place, even amidst suffering? Here's how Psalm 100, verse 4. Enter his gates, enter his presence, go to the mountaintop, live with joy. How? Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Go into his courts. Go into the presence of God. How? With praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. I've read that verse countless times growing up and it wasn't until I've been reading some of Wilder's stuff, I saw it in a whole new light. Through his study of brain science and other doctors' study of brain science, they've discovered that the way our brain turns on its relational circuits to connect with other people, to also connect with the Father of Heaven, the way we turn on our brain and reprogram it so that we can experience God in relationship, experience relationship with others, is through appreciation and thanksgiving. Pop psychology has been telling us for a long time, think more positively. I've always kind of rolled my eyes at that because apart from Jesus, we don't have the power to just will ourselves to think more positively, right? It's a nice thought. It's better than think negatively. But still, we need the gospel to empower our positive thoughts. Psalm 100 verse 4 confirms 2,000 years, 4,000 years before brain science would agree with it. But the way into God's presence, the way into joy is through practicing appreciation, gratitude, thankfulness, and praise. Say, so how do I do that? I want to give you something incredibly practical. I've been reading Jim Wilder's stuff, Marcus Warner's stuff about how to build more joy into our life and build a capacity for joy. He says what we want to do is build bounce into our life. And what he means by that is when the boulders knock us down that mountain and we're tempted to sit in the thorn-filled seat, bounce means that we're able to get back to joy quickly because we've reprogrammed our brain and we've built the capacity to deal with the feelings of overwhelm and anxiety and pain, but we can get back quickly to a place of interaction and joy with the Father. How do we build bounce? I've discovered it in an insanely easy practice that you can do every day, multiple times a day with yourself or with your children that will do this. It will build mounts into your life and enable you to live with more joy. It's so simple. Here are the three things. During dinner time, sometimes before bed, I ask my kids and wife these three questions. Tell me one thing you're thankful for today. 
we go around and we share. What are you thankful for? Why? Do you know that God gave that to you? He's the giver of every good gift. That's what the Bible tells us in James. Let's receive his good gift in thanksgiving. Number two, what's a memory that brings you joy? I invite my kids and I share. A memory from my past can be anything. Anything. What's a memory that brought joy to your heart? And we go around. My kids are often quoting vacations that we've taken with my family, times with friends. It can be anything. And then I'll follow it up. What about that memory brings joy? Because I'm helping, I'm helping them try and live in that state of joy and remember God's faithfulness to them in the past. And then we can also build joy not just by looking in the past, but looking forward in anticipation to the future. And that's the last question. What's one thing you're looking forward to? What's something that, that you can't wait, wait for in anticipation? And we do this. Not every day, but daily. Set a reminder on, on your phone Put a list in your note app or whatever of appreciation memories. Memories that you can just go back to. They're not tarnished by any pain, any wound. You can just remember and go back. It's like, man, that was good. God, you were good here. Romans 12, 2 confirms what Jim, the neuroscientist, is teaching us through modern science today. Romans 12, 2 says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. What's the pattern of this world? Jump on Facebook, grumble, complain, whine, grumble. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. How? How? By the renewing of your mind. Reprogram your brain circuits. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is you will be able to connect with your Father in tangible, meaning, meaningful ways. You'll be able to know His will, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Paul tells us also in Philippians 4, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is excellent, whatever is praiseworthy, think on such things. Practice appreciation and gratitude from the Father and you will enable yourself to experience more joy in the present, even even when you suffer. And again, it's not, it's not that you won't be affected by the suffering and the pain. It's going to hurt. But by, by conditioning your brain to live in a state of appreciation, you will be able to move out of that thorny seat, up the mountain, and interact with the Lord so that he can tell you where he was in that pain. And he can tell you what he is up to in that pain, right? Suffering produces what, what did he say? I got to get back to it. Sorry. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. How do you perceive that reality? You have to be on the mountain in connection with the Father to know the truth of that. Appreciation is how we climb that mountain every day. I invite you to start climbing it with me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for pursuing us. Lord, I'm just aware in my heart that there are folks who, who, have, been who have been wounded tremendously, hurt, Lord, by the, the loss of loved ones, by the sins of others, by the failings of, of moms and dads, 
I'm sure many of us have, have traumas in our lives. And Father, a lot of us have taken a seat in that valley. We don't know where you are. We don't know what you're up to. Lord Jesus, in Matthew, you told us why you came. And in Luke, you said you came because of what was prophesied thousands of years earlier in Isaiah 61. That the Messiah, when he comes, will heal up the brokenhearted. He will bind up the brokenhearted. He will set captives free. He will heal our wounds and traumas. Lord Jesus, I'm calling you to do that. Be good to your word. Heal our traumas. Turn them into testimonies of your faithfulness, of your goodness. Help us perceive where you are in our lives, even amidst the suffering. Lord Jesus, we cannot climb the mountain apart from you. But because of what you've done, because of the peace that you've restored between us and God, because of the grace that you've invited us to stand into that helps us know that God is always, to be ha- always happy to be with us, because of what you've done, with your help, we can climb that mountain. Help us climb, Lord. Help us sit in the seat where we sense your presence and live with your joy. For your glory and our joy. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.